Today's scripture comes from 1 Corinthians 10, 1 to 13. For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed to the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now these things took place as examples for us, that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were, as it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did, and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble as some of them did, and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. You may be seated. Let me pray for us as we're seated. Father, we thank you for this word. We thank you for the generational instruction it is to us. We thank you for the beauty of the gospel, and we pray that it would land firmly upon our hearts and that it would be both convicting and strengthening and informing and transformative. And we just pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. We are now back into 1 Corinthians. Um, if you're new with us, we've been in 1 Corinthians since September. This is the 24th Sunday we've been in it, and we're not done yet. Um, don't worry, the weirdest part's still to come. It's great. Today, the way we're going to look at this text, I'm going to give you an outline, three points that we're going to navigate uh, our way through this text with. We're going to talk about blessing. We're going to talk about warning, and we're going to talk about assurance. Blessing, warning, and assurance. Three simple words, three uh, beautiful reminders for us as we look at the text. I want you to look at verses one through four with me one more time. For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea. And all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. See, Paul the Apostle is writing this letter to the church of God in Corinth that he knows, he knows them well. He knows that the, they're coming and they're going. He knows their strengths and their weaknesses. He knows their things that are to be admired, and he knows their things that are not going very well. He knows their sin. He knows how they need to be comprehending the blessing of God, how they need to be warned, and then he also knows how they need to be assured of the work of God in their life. And he's writing to them, and he says something interesting. He says, brothers and sisters, fellow Christians, I want you to know what our ancestors went through. He's talking about the Exodus generation from 1,500 or so years earlier. The book of Exodus, if you're, if you're somewhat unfamiliar with the Bible, is the second book of the Bible. The book of Exodus gives us the account of the way that God's people had fallen into slavery in Egypt and the way that God redeemed them and, and brought them out of slavery into the wilderness and then eventually they're going to 
head toward the promised land. God raises up a guy named Moses in Egypt when God's people are enslaved, and and he raises Moses up to be the deliverer, the one who is going to bring them out of Egypt and and lead the way. And, and, And God puts his own power on display in and through a whole bunch of signs and wonders and miracles. God puts his power uh, on display over and against the power of Pharaoh, who was the ruler of Egypt, and over and against even the small g gods of Egypt, that everyone might know that he is the one true God. So as these things are going on, and there's a variety of plagues that come and difficult circumstances that are brought upon Egypt because Pharaoh will not let God's people go, eventually, when the 10th of 10 plagues hits, Pharaoh goes, all right, that's enough. Get out of here. Leave. Be free. He sets God's people free. See, God was judging Pharaoh in Egypt for the way that they had oppressed his people and how they would not let his people go. And the 10th plague was called the plague of the firstborn the death of the firstborn. God spoke to his people through Moses and and what he told them to do is he said to you people, God's people, I want you to sacrifice a lamb and I want you to take some of the blood of that lamb and put it on the doorposts and on the beam that goes across the top of the door because there's going to come a destroyer and the destroyer is going to take the firstborn of, of everything. But if you have the blood on the doorposts and on the beam across the top of the doorposts, God will spare you, and the angel of death will pass over you, and you will be saved. So this is what God's people do. And it was such a brutal judgment that Pharaoh, he then responds after this happens, and there's just a slaughter across the land that he responds with, just go. What happens, though, is God's people leave, and God begins to guide them toward the Red Sea. And on the way somewhere, God hardens Pharaoh's heart, and he goes, hang on a second, that's my entire labor force. Those are my slaves. No, 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 no. We're going to go get them back. And so he raises up the army and they go to follow God's people. God's people are going off into deliverance, off into freedom. And now the army comes. And here's what happened. God led the children of Israel to camp on the, on the, on the shore of the Red Sea. Told them where to go and they went there. He led them to that point. Now all of a sudden they've got in front of them, if you can imagine, the Red Sea. And then they turn around and there's Pharaoh's army. <laughs> closing in on them. And what happens is, God doesn't just take out the army, God opens up the Red Sea. The people of God walk across the dry ground of the sea into the desert wilderness that they're going to be in for some years. Pharaoh's army follows through on the dry ground of the floor of the sea, and as God's people make their way across to the other shore, the waters close in and the army is destroyed. There's a lot going on here. God saves them. God delivers them. God brings them out of slavery into freedom. God fights the battle for them and they win. God then continues to lead them in the desert wilderness by a pillar of cloud by day and by a pillar of fire by night. And God provides them in the desert with miraculous food and miraculous drink. Supernatural food supernatural drink to sustain them in the midst of their wanderings. So look at the text again. For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea and all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them and the rock was Christ. Here's what I want you to see. 
just as we are saved by the death of Jesus in our place. They were saved by the blood of the sacrificial lamb. Just as we enter into the waters of baptism, as many did here last Sunday, it's a picture of being delivered from our slavery to sin and entering into our new life in Christ. Just as we did that, they passed through the sea, putting their former slavery behind them, even as they entered into the new life of freedom that was promised to them eventually in the promised land. Just as we are baptized in the Holy Spirit when we come to faith, they too were immersed in the cloud of God's presence. Just as we eat the spiritual food of the bread and, and drink the spiritual drink of the wine in our communion meal, which we'll celebrate when I'm finished preaching, they all celebrated this and they all ate the spiritual bread and drank the spiritual water of God's sustaining grace in the wilderness. So Andrew Wilson says it like this. So Israel, like the Corinthians, had a redemption story, an exodus story, the experience of the Spirit in their midst, and equivalents of both baptism and the Lord's Supper. They were just like us. Now, I find that compelling. This is the reality of God our Savior working miraculous salvation on our behalf. And Paul is writing to the church of God in Corinth, and he's wanting them to be reminded of the story they have been grafted into through the work of Christ. See, we're grafted into the Exodus story, and it becomes our story, and they become our ancestors because of the work of Christ. There's now our family tree. So whatever your background, if you're a follower of Jesus, these are your spiritual ancestors. Femi Perkins uh, wrote this. She said, by referring to the wilderness generation as all our fathers, Paul invites his audience to consider themselves part of God's people, even though most are not Jewish Christians. We serve the God who saves, who redeems, who adopts, and who makes good on all of his promises. This is the reminder of the reality that you serve a God who is the same yesterday, today, and forever. That he is the one God who brings all of his people to salvation by grace as a gift. Okay, now look back at verse 4. All drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. You go, that's a weird sentence. Paul is reminding them of their story. He's actually quoting Moses from Deuteronomy chapter 32 and verse 4. Let me read a few verses. At the end of Moses' life, he, he, he sang a song to tell the story. Give ear, O heavens, and I will speak, and let the earth hear the words of my mouth. May my teaching drop as the rain, my speech distill as the dew, like gentle rain upon the tender grass, and like showers upon the herb. For I will proclaim the name of the Lord, ascribe greatness to our God. The rock, his work is perfect, for all his ways are justice. A God of faithfulness and without iniquity, just and upright is he. He is our rock. And when you've been saved, this becomes your story. Now, I'm pointing back nearly 2,000 years ago to words written by Paul to a church in the ancient city of Corinth. And in that letter, Paul is pointing back about 1,500 years earlier and quoting Moses as the recount of the Exodus story and everything that they learned about God in the midst of it. And in the Exodus, we have this glorious revelation of the nature and character of the faithful God who saves. 
And I like all of that because God doesn't change. In the midst of all of the upheaval of your life, all of the twists, all of the turns, all of the things that are so far out of your control that it's laughable, he doesn't change. The same God, yesterday, today, and forever. Look at the next verse, verse 5. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased. And you go, oh no. <laughs> For they were overthrown in the desert. Paul says to the church in Corinth, you were saved like them, you were redeemed like them, you've been set free like them, you enjoy the presence of God like them, you have provision like them, and the problem is you're sinning like them too, and that's not good. There's a purpose to looking at all the blessings that we see in the book of Exodus. There's a purpose to it. They've experienced God's kindness, just like Israel experienced his kindness in and through and after the Exodus. The problem is they begin to take God's grace for granted, and they rebel, and he's warning them. They experience, number one, the blessing of, of God's grace. But they experience also number two here, the warning of his judgment. It says in verse six, now these things took place as examples for us, that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were, as it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did. And 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now, these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. An example. Four specific warnings about four specific kinds of sin that we see in the text. Idolatry, sexual immorality, testing Christ, and grumbling. We're going to look at all of them in a minute, but I want you to see something first. Look at verse 6 again. It's a warning. Now, these things took place for us, took place as examples for us. Look at this, though. That we might not desire evil as they did. That we might not desire evil as they did. All this stuff happened, Paul's saying, and he's reading it, you could say, Christologically. He's reading it for all of the events that happened coming to focus so that he could disciple the Corinthians. And he says, look, there was an example here set for us so that we might not desire evil. You see that? These people who experienced God's redeeming power still desired evil and they expressed it in idolatry, which we know is lifting up anything to a place of prominence or preeminence in our life, to enthroning anything or anyone and putting them on Jesus' throne. That's where God's supposed to be. Nothing else gets to go there. If you want to know more about idolatry and how it's actually not just bowing down to idols today, how it's actually something that functions in our life, we did a whole series of messages that you can find online. Idolatry, sexual immorality, we've talked about that a fair amount in our study of Corinthians. Testing Christ, we're going to look at what that is, and grumbling, which I love that that's there. So if they know God, if they've experienced his love, his presence, his blessing, the question you've got to ask is why are their hearts still bent toward evil desires? 
toward desiring evil. Okay. Universal problem. Let me reset the scene for a second. Okay. Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. They're enjoying all that God created, everything that he had given them. They're finding joy in knowing him and walking with him. And then enters the tempter, the serpent, Satan. He comes to them and he tempts them to sin, to disobey God by eating of the fruit of the garden that God had commanded Adam and Eve not to eat. I just want you to see this in verse 6. Look at this with me. Chapter 3 of Genesis, verse 6. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Okay? Good for food. Delight to the eyes. Desired to make one wise. Okay? It's good for food. It's not like Eve lacked food. She had all the food she could ever need. She wanted that one. Delight to the eyes, I, I, I don't think in the Garden of Eden, Eve would have lacked beauty to look upon in God's creation. She found something beautiful and then she wanted it. It was desired to make one wise. Again, she's walking in the cool of the day in the Garden of Eden with the Creator God who is the source of all wisdom. But she sees in the fruit that it is to be desired to make one wise. She doesn't want the wisdom she can get from God. She wants that wisdom she can get on her own. She wanted it on her own terms. Okay, she's not, now I want you to see this. This is, I think, helpful for us. She is not being guided by her rational thoughts. It's not like there's an argument going on that's like, well, let's just sit down and make a pro and con list. Just like the pro list is just a million pages long, and the con list is like, sin is death. That's all it says. And you're like, huh, it's not rational. Do you see this? She's being guided by what she wants. Not being guided by what she believes to be true. She knows who God is, and she knows what he said. She's being guided by what she desires. It's the same for every human being ever born since. We are first and foremost creatures of desire. And as creatures of desire, we need to pay attention to where we are aiming or aligning those desires, what we're pointing our desire at. It's a great quote for this. I've used it so many times, but you always forget my quotes, and it's so helpful. <laughs> James Smith. Jamie Smith said, It is not just that I know some end or believe in some telos. More than that, I long for some end. I want something and want it ultimately. It is my desires that define me. In short, you are what you love. When he says this telos idea, it's this ultimate object or aim. Think of it like a target. We're all pointing at some telos, some aim, some end, something ultimate that we are living for. And what he's saying is, is that every single human being is a creature of desire and we are defined by what we aim our desires at. Desire in and of itself is not a bad thing. 
But what are you living for? The Adam and Eve didn't make a mistake of having desires. God created them that way. He created you that way too. Desire is good. It's the object of your desire that might get you in trouble. The problem in the Garden of Eden was directing that desire to someone or something other than God. Their mistake was directing their desires in a direction contrary to what God had said was best for them. Okay? Paul's point back in 1 Corinthians is that you can have the experience of a relationship with God like Adam and Eve. You can have the awareness of your redemption and your salvation like the children of Israel. You can remember your baptism and and you can remember putting slavery to sin behind you and you can partake of spiritual food in the communion meal. You can enjoy all of God's blessings in your life and you can still be tempted to aim your desire at something or someone contrary to God's will. And because of that, you need to be warned that you should not presume upon the kindness of God. You need to get your head and your heart straightened out aligned, desiring him above all else. And when you do so, you'll be disciplining yourself for holiness in your conduct. Look at verse 6. Let's walk through each of these four. Verse 6 and 7. Now these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were, as it is written. The people sat down to eat, and drank, and rose up to play. Okay? If you're in your community groups this week, discuss these four things. I'm not going to go into them at great length, but there's a lot to read in the Old Testament about them. Go to Exodus 32.6. When Moses is up on the mountain with God, he takes a minute longer than they thought he should take, and he's not coming down. So what they do, they gather together all the gold jewelry, melt it down, and make a calf, and then go, we worship you. You're like, what? Didn't he just deliver you? Like, yes, we forget. Forget. All the time. They desired evil in the form of idolatry. Paul's still talking about it a while later. It's probably important to pay attention to. Second one, verse 6 and 8. Now these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. 8 says we must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did. And 23,000 fell in a single day. This is from Numbers chapter 25 verses 1 through 9. There was flagrant sin and sexual immorality in the people. And you can read the story. As a consequence, 23,000 of them dead. They desired evil in the form of sexual immorality. Third one, verse 6 and 9. Now, these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. Verse 9 says, we must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents. And you're like, that is a juicy story. Let's go. Numbers 21, verses 5 through 9. Okay, putting Christ to the test is basically not trusting him. It's not trusting his promises. And in fact, it's actually showing contempt for his gifts and provision for you. In the passage that it's referencing, they were rejecting their deliverance from Egypt. They're like, man, we could have died back there. Why'd you bring us all the way here just to die, Moses? They're rejecting the miraculous food that God's bringing. There's like miracle bread on the ground so you don't starve. And they're like, this sucks. I had this yesterday. 
There's no water in the desert. What happens? There's water coming out of a rock. So they don't die. And they're like, psh. The alkaline balance in this water is not great. <laughs> like, I don't know. There's, what is going on? They're looking over their shoulders and they're thinking, you know what? We had it not that bad when we were slaves. They desired evil in the form of reproaching God's saving work and provision in their life. Fourth one. Now, these things took place as examples for all of us, for us, that we might not desire evil as they did. Verse 10, nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Hey, this is from a bunch of places because these people grumbled a lot. So you search the word grumble in some sort of online Bible thing, you're going to find a lot. So I'm just going to give you one spot you could go to, Numbers chapter 16, verses 41 to 50. There's a plague that comes upon the people because they're grumbling about God and the way that Moses was leading them. And, and it's really not that far off from what they were doing when they were putting Christ to the test. But their grumbling is ultimately like it's a picture of their dissatisfaction with the life that they're living. And it amounts to thanklessness. And in the end, it means they're desiring that which was uh, they were in bondage to. They're desiring that which they were saved from, which means they're desiring evil. They don't, like, God saved them, and they're like, I, don't, I do not like how he did that. Moses is leading them through the desert. Moses has no clue, just so you know, just like every leader you've ever met in the church. Okay? He has no clue what he's doing. He's always going like, God, I don't know what to do. And he's like, I know, I haven't told you yet. Okay? Moses is leading them, has no clue, didn't even want the job, like some of us. <laughs> didn't, I didn't want to be a pastor, I wanted to be wealthy. <laughs> Joking, I love it. <laughs> Moses didn't want the job, didn't want to speak, God's frustrated. I mean, there's all sorts of things going on. And then Moses does the thing that God calls him to do and people complain about it all the time. They're grumbling, Moses, we just could have died back there where we had meat at the camp. Like, he's giving you miracle food every day. You're, anyways, you get it. Okay, here's the genius of Paul the Apostle. Look at verse 6 again. Now, these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. Idolatry, sexual morality, testing Christ and grumbling. And then you get to verse 11. Now, these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Their example for our instruction. Okay, What sin, perchance, were the Corinthians struggling with? Idolatry, sexual immorality, testing Christ, and grumbling. They had the same grace-filled deliverance from their slavery to sin, and you can literally map the Exodus story onto the story of salvation. That's, I mean, it, it, it works the other way. The Exodus is first. We look back at it as the pattern or type. But you can now, just as you can do that, you can now take the evil desires of those who were saved in the Exodus, who were wandering in the wilderness, and you can map them onto the, church of the, uh, the sin of the church of Corinth. It's the same thing. Okay? There's a warning here, verse 12. Therefore... Because of all that I just said. Let anyone who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. It's a very strong warning. There's actually warnings and assurances all through 1 Corinthians. There's a, 
I quoted him already, a guy named Andrew Wilson. He wrote a PhD dissertation on um, the warnings and assurances in 1 Corinthians, if you're interested. It's out of stock right now. It's only $128 on Amazon anyways. <laughs> warning and assurance, warning and assurance, warning and assurance, warning and assurance, all the way through 1 Corinthians. This is a very strong warning. Who's he warning? Christians. People who are part of the congregation in Corinth. So he says, therefore, because of all that, because all their sin, their rejection of their warnings, and their destruction, he says, therefore, church in Corinth, pay attention. Do not presume upon the kindness of God in your willful disobedience. A couple things might be going on. One, maybe you don't believe this. Maybe you think you do. Take heed lest you fall. Maybe you do believe it, but you're just willfully disobedient. Take heed. Pay attention. See, in their experience of grace, they continued to presume upon the kindness of God, and as a consequence, they desired evil, not God. And this warning is actually part of God's blessing in their life. See, if we understand it, the warning is part of God's grace to them. Why? Okay, Paul says, take heed. Pay attention. Notice something here. Okay, take heed of what? Well, take heed of the way you're living in light of who God is and in light of what he's done. Take heed that you really know and serve God. Verse 13, no temptation has overcome you that is not common to man. God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. God is faithful. He's driven his whole point from, hey, remember what happened to our ancestors? He drives the whole point through a whole bunch of warning passages to God is faithful. <laughs> this is the good news. They have experienced the blessing of his grace. Number two, they experienced and needed to hear the warning of his judgment. But that comes with number three, the assurance of his faithfulness. Take heed. When you know the blessing of salvation, you hear the warning to consider how you're living, you take heed. Don't forget the power to obey God and the power to glorify God and the power to turn your desire from evil and repent from that and turn it into a desire for God. The power to actually do that comes from the God who is faithfully providing you a way of escape from your temptation to sin. It, it is as though, if I may, it is as though he continues to provide you an exodus from your slavery to sin. He always provides a way out. Why? Because he's faithful. Okay, if you tuned me out like when we were doing the elder installation, and you're still here, but you're just here in body, okay, come back. Okay, I know this happens from time to time. It's okay. Okay, if you missed everything else, hear this. Paul is writing this letter to the saints in Corinth. These are not sinners, categorically. They are saints who keep sinning and need to take heed, <laughs> lest they fall. They have experienced God's blessing and they are hearing his warning. But what does Paul say in this warning? 
Does he say, take heed, do better, and try harder? It's really up to you? The problem is, some of you actually believe that. You're struggling, and you think, if I just do better and try harder, I'll make it. I'll tell you, you won't. You'll just get exhausted. Because your eyes are only on you. What comes in the assurance is not the command to do better and try harder and just navel gaze a little bit more and you might make it. No, he takes their eyes off of themselves and off of their failures and he directs their eyes to God and he says God is faithful. When Adam and Eve were unfaithful, God was faithful. When Moses and his entire generation were unfaithful, God was still faithful. When the disciples were unfaithful, Jesus was faithful. When you were unfaithful, God's kindness brought you to repentance. The assurance that you who love God need in this moment the assurance of you who will repent of your sin, who will turn from evil, who actually will endeavor to walk in holiness, empowered by the Spirit. The assurance you need is that your efforts won't fail because God won't fail you. God is faithful, and he gives you the power to persevere. In fact, he opens up the door to escape the temptations that are going to come your way. The temptations have been coming since the Garden of Eden. The people who were miraculously delivered out, and I mean, you got to think, they walked through the Red Sea on the dry ground, and then they fell into idolatry, sexual immorality, testing Christ, and grumbling. Same temptations, God's still faithful. The temptations are going to come for you too. Look at the first part of this though, because I think it's helpful. Verse 13, first part of verse 13 says, no temptation has overcome you that is not common to man. <laughs> Can I, be, I just want to be honest with you for a sec. Like as though I'm not always honest with you, right? Be a, little extra, a little extra honesty today. Um, I love you, I, so I can be honest with you. I know that, thank you. Um, you're not special. Like your mom lied to you. <laughs> you know that card you got from your, your, your grandma that says you were the number one grandkid in the world? It's all lies. You're not special. It's not entirely what I mean. But you're not special in this sense. That no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. For thousands of years, people have been walking in relationship with God. And I just want to say, like, do you really think that what you're facing today is like the one and only temptation where God's like, oh, I see him down there. You know what? Mark it. Somebody, he's like, Father's like, hey, hey Spirit, call it. It's 10 o'clock, Sunday, April 24th, city of Vancouver, call it now. We found the temptation, cannot be escaped. 
What you're dealing with is not unusual. Our generation gets a little grumbly. Well, I mean, honestly, no one had to deal with social media. Yeah, sure. Also, like, you don't have to dig your own food and stuff. Like, there's difficulties in life. Everything's online. Like, yes, also, you could have not been able to read and somebody was just duping you because they could read it in Latin. I'm just telling you, there's a lot of different things through history that are difficult. You're not special. Your temptation to sin is no more special than any other person in the history of humanity. And the same God who upheld them upholds you. That should warm your heart. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. He's the same 1,500 years before Paul talking about the Exodus, and he's the same 2,000 years ago talking about the Corinthians. We're just as messed up, and he's just as good. He's mighty to save. God is faithful. See, is all your hope wrapped up in your grip on God? How much you can hang on to him? Or is all your hope wrapped up in God's grip on you? That tells me everything I need to know about all your theology. <laughs> it was my grip on God. Not only did I slip, my fingers slipped, I let go thousands of times. And he just hangs on to me. And he says, there's no temptation you're facing that is uncommon to man. Come here. And we'll provide you a way of escape from that if you'll depend on me. Look at this one more time. I want you to take this home with you. Verse 13 says, No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Okay? Three practical ways that God will provide you the way of escape. Number one, remember the blessing of his grace. Number two, heed the warning of his judgment. And number three, meditate on the assurance of his faithfulness. Some of you say, I don't bring application. There you go. The whole sermon. It's actually just our staff that say, I don't do application. The rest of you love me. Remember his blessing. Heed his warning and meditate on his assurance. God is faithful. 